The year is 2019. The number of D&D podcasts has risen 400%. However, one podcast stands out above the rest. In the city of Nashville, one man sits at his desk and speaks into his microphone, delivering the best, most entertaining interviews and commentary on the game. His name is Ryan Howard. His show, Rollin' Bones, with Ryan Howard. Now that that ego-stroking nonsense is out of the way, how is everyone doing today? We have a great show for you guys. I'm actually really excited for this one. Today on the show, we have the founder of Planet X Games and the man behind the great, fantastic Instagram page. It came from Beyond Planet X, Mr. Levi Combs. Levi was so fun to talk to. He is a great guy. He's got this great project that's currently on Kickstarter called The Occurrence at Howling Crater. It is a sci-fi horror B-movie adventure compatible with 5th edition. It is redonkulous beyond belief. He describes it in the best way possible, so I'm going to leave that to him. But we had a great conversation. Levi's really cool, and I'm really glad that I got the chance to talk to him. So I'm not going to waste too much of your time today just rambling on and babbling. I'm going to do a short rant, and then we are going to just jump right into the interview. Uh, first and foremost, I want to give a few plugs. There is one week, actually a little bit less than one week, but right around one week left on the Knights and Nerds podcast Kickstarter. They are fully funded, so they will be getting that new recording equipment. I'm so unbelievably proud of them. I love those people. I love them so much. But if you want to get in on some of those rewards, if you want that Thanos one-shot, if you want to have Tim run an adventure for you and your friends, um, if you want to co-host a behind-the-screen episode with Tim, then you most certainly still have the opportunity to jump on that. Also, the Occurrence at Howling Crater Kickstarter, which you're going to hear a lot of information on from Levi on this episode, is also still going on. It is also fully funded. Um, the stretch goals are being reached right now. You have two more days to jump on that. Two more days. So if you want to get in on that Kickstarter, if you want to get some of those crazy uh, Kickstarter bonuses and help them reach that, that final stretch goal, which is unbelievably amazing jump on that you'll hear like i said you'll hear more about that in today's episode uh but i am very excited for how this uh how this kickstarter is going to turn out and then the last thing i want to mention uh we had them on the show a while back eldritch foundry their kickstarter went incredibly well it wildly exceeded their expectations uh to the point where they're actually having some trouble kind of getting the system uh stress proof but they are planning on launching the site in full in September. Uh, if you are at Gen Con right now, they are there. Uh, go say hi to them. Uh, they are currently, like, like they have a printer set up, so you can design and order, and they will print a mini for you at the convention. It's really awesome. A couple of my friends are there right now. They they got some minis from, from Eldritch Foundry. I am so incredibly excited to get my Eldritch Foundry minis made and painted. Once I have them, I'll be doing a paint and a review of them on my Instagram. As always, my social media is at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on both Twitter and Instagram. If you love miniatures and you want to see a guy learning how to paint miniatures, my Instagram is the place for you. I think I'm getting better. I'll leave that up to you to decide. But yes, if you are at Gen Con right now, Eldritch Foundry, they are set up on the floor. Go say hi to them. If you're not there like me, unfortunately, we have to wait until September, but I am waiting with bated breath. I am excited. So that's going to lead me to today's rant from behind the screen. Because I want to briefly talk about conventions. Like I said, this is the weekend of Gen Con. Those of you who are listening to the show at Gen Con, tell all of your friends. Tell guests who have not heard of me. Go find Matt Mercer and bother him and tell him that Roland Bones with Ryan Howard is awesome and he should do the show. Do that for Matt Colville as well. But yeah... If you've never been to a gaming convention, I highly, highly recommend that you go because gaming conventions are so unbelievably fun. If you've ever wanted to try out a system, but you don't 
you know necessarily want to like buy the books and and read through them you don't you don't want to go through all that hassle maybe you're afraid you're not actually going to like the system gaming conventions are where you can try out new systems and you know find out oh this this is a ton of fun i want to run this for my friends or i want you know one of my friends to run this or you know oh this this new system's coming out and you know you can like play test new systems it's it's a great place to find new games like the, the only thing you should well not the only thing but the main thing you should be doing at at gaming conventions is trying out new games that's what they're there for now there are a couple concerns that people have for valid reasons about gaming conventions first and foremost a lot of people don't like playing games with strangers and i completely understand that rpgs can be incredibly personal like it, you can you can get really into character like i do and you know you can have a certain play style that might clash with like the play style of strangers so in an environment where you don't know the people that you're sitting down at the table at, it can be a little bit scary, it can be a little bit daunting. If you're a DM, uh, you have no idea what people are going to show up with. I mean, typically you create the characters, but you have no idea what kind of preconceived notions of what gaming is supposed to be your players will bring to the table. You don't know the personalities that are going to be together. You don't know what kind of conflicts are going to show up. And it can be a scary thing. But as someone who has run games at conventions, there was nothing more satisfying than sitting down with a big group of strangers and saying, all right, this is the adventure, pick your characters, blah, blah, whatever, and then starting, and then by the end of it, everyone is having a grand old time. The fact that you cannot just run a a fun game for your friends, but you can run a game that complete and total strangers find fun in is one of the most satisfying things that you can do as a DM. And it it really kind of pushes your your limits as a DM. It, it pushes you to be quick on your feet because you never know what your players are going to do. You can somewhat anticipate the kind of things that your every week players are going to bring to the table. But if you've got complete strangers coming in, one group is going to go off in this direction. Another group's going to go off in the other direction. And you have no idea what's in store for you or what they're going to try to do, what kind of ways they're going to try to break the system so it really pushes your improv you you have to be quick on your feet and it's it's a great place to learn to to improv on the convention floor that's it's one of the best places to hone your skills as a dm and as a player because again as a player you never know what you're going to walk into you never know what class you'll be playing sometimes like i talked about with shane when i walked up to play in his uh his deadlands game i wanted to play a gunslinger because who doesn't want to play a gunslinger when you're playing a western game uh, but i ended up with a huckster and i really had no interest in playing a huckster so I had to, I had to find the interest. I had to broaden my horizons and try playing that huckster. And I ended up having a fantastic time with it. And that was one of those sessions where the dice were not in my favor. A lot of things were going wrong for me to the point where early on I got messed up in a carriage crash and I rolled double ones to like, I forget what the save is in, uh, in Savage Worlds, but basically, it was like the equivalent of a constitution check. So I had, for the rest of the adventure, a minus one to all attacks. But I had to find the fun. And I did find the fun. And part of that's because Shane is a great GM. But another part of that is I, I'm i a great player. I was able to find the fun in a situation where my character was weaker than the other characters. And the dice were not in my favor. And that's something that conventions teach you. So if you've never been to a gaming convention, find one. Find one and go to it and, you know, have have a great time. Have fun playing new systems with new people. And you might find your new favorite system. And you might make some new friends. And you might get the chance to meet the people who make the RPGs that you love. You know, like, I got to meet Shane. You know, I know for a fact right now Steve Kenson is at Gen Con. Matt Colville is at Gen Con. Matt Mercer's at Gen Con. All of these great people you can meet at conventions and play in games with them for the most part. I don't know if Matt Mercer has a publicly open slot as a GM. That would be insane, and it's probably already full. But if you get that opportunity, you should most certainly take it. Convention gaming is scary, but you know, once you get going, once you find out that you, okay, this is a good group of people, that's when the fun really begins. And, and that's one of the best parts of going to a gaming convention it's it's like a three-day vacation where you can just 
play board games and play tabletop games. And I'm I'm bummed that I didn't get to go to Gen Con this year. Uh, I'm definitely planning on going next year. And if a gaming convention pops up in the meantime, I'll certainly go. I will be announcing what conventions I'm going to if any of you want to meet me somewhere. That's a plan I have moving forward. So, that is going to do it for today's Rent from Behind the Screen. One more quick thing before we uh, get into today's episode. If anyone is going to the, uh, the Alice Cooper and Hailstorm concert at the Opry House in Nashville, Tennessee this Sunday, tomorrow as I'm recording this, I will be there. If you see me, if you hear my voice, and you want to introduce yourself, feel free to come up to me and say, Hi, I love the show. No one has ever done that at any public event I've ever been to. I'm just going to throw that out there if any of you are present. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to today's interview with Levi Combs of Planet X Games. This is going to be a fun one. I'm really excited. I hope you enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, I have on the show today the brain behind the Instagram page, It Came From Beyond Planet X, and the founder of Planet X Games, ladies and gentlemen, Levi Combs. Levi, welcome to Rolling Bones. Hey, man, happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. Well, Levi, we are going to start the show the same way we start every single show. I'm going to ask you a series of questions that everyone has to answer when they come on Rolling Bones. So, Levi, <laughs> how did you get into RPGs or D&D? Oh, man. Uh, well, I guess I was probably seven or eight years old, and my mom and I went to a, went to a yard sale, and there was a, there was an old battered copy of the Monster Manual. And I had no idea what D&D was. I had, had zero clue. And, uh, you know, I picked up that, that old first edition Monster Manual and started paging through it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is the coolest stuff. You know, there was the Black Pudding and the Beholder and all the dragons and, you know, a bunch of other stuff I didn't quite understand, but it looked so cool. Yeah, so, you know, my mom, she paid, a, I don't know, a quarter something for it and uh you know kind of, kind of went from there uh and then i ended up getting the the red box you know the uh you know and i lived in a small town uh you know there was no going down to a hobby store or uh you know and it plus it was the bible belt in the 80s so <laughs> there was no there was no uh no you know going uh, down to walmart or target or whatever to pick up a copy yeah I, I think i think we actually ordered it uh through the mail and it came you know, and it came so and so that first game that was the was that the first edition monsters manual oh yeah yeah the one with the uh, you know the, the crazy um, you know collection of monsters on the front of it, where there's the tunnel underneath, and there's the the mm. Roper and the Owlbear and the Red Dragon in the sky. Yeah, that, that beautiful artwork. Yeah, that yeah. that just captured my imagination, man. I loved that book. Still love it to this day. I paged through it, and I'm thinking, man, this you know this is just this is the pinnacle right here for you know the or the early days of gaming. I, I still love it to this day. Well, when you got all the books together, uh, do you remember the first character that you played? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, so I you know I. I, I was the guy who, it seems like I almost always was the DM, you know, I was the guy who had the books and, you know, I, there was always people coming in and out and whatnot, but the first character that I played uh, was Fenwick the Elf, you know, he was your typical, um, you know, <laughs> every trope rolled into one character you know mm-hmm. he was the exactly what you'd expect from uh you know from a i don't know a nine-year-old with uh you know try, trying to you know uh, play his first character my first character was also every trope rolled into one but i was 19 so i had very few excuses <laughs> you know right on <laughs> They, you know, they tended to get a little bit better from there on out, <laughs> but uh, you know that that first one, you know, and I think I, I died. A, you know, a skeleton killed me, and I mean, there was a room with a water trap, trap chest, you know, that had a dart trap or something on it. And uh, I, remember, I just remember I got killed by a skeleton. It was, you know, it was one of those, uh, like I said, a very tropey thing. But that's, you know, come full circle. That's the kind of stuff that I I love about the classic uh, era of D and D now. And was that in the days where elf was your class as well as your race? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. There was, you know, and listen, there's two you know, schools of thought there. There's some people who, you know, that love that approach. And there are some people who want more customization. I think they're both, you know, fine. It's really it's whatever, you know, whatever you want. You know, I, I prefer the latter. I prefer customization and, and, and whatnot. But uh, I can dive right into a, you know, um, a, a game straight out of the red box if I need to. Now, you mentioned that you have done more DMing than playing in your time just because you always had the books. How would you describe your style of DMing? 
Oh, uh, well, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, evolve over the years. I mean, I would say that, you know, early on, I mean, really throughout my teens and probably the early 20s, it was just like, every, you know, everybody else when they start, you know, you've, you you go through a series of tropes and, a, you know, all the dungeons are, you know, you know, hacks off of, of other things and, you know, things from uh, popular fantasy and, you know, um, you know, novels that I read and so on. But I didn't even discover the, you know, the classic modules, you know, the, the really, really good stuff. You know, like uh, you know, White Plume Mountain and uh, Lost Cameras of Sokjanth and uh, Hidden Shrine of Tomochan. I didn't discover any of that until uh, until much, much, much later. You know, in college, my style it it really evolved over a long period of time. Now today, I go for a much more you know uh, dynamic <laughs> you know um, style of play. Now, um, you know, these days I, I have what I call the rule of cool, man. You know, I really mm-hmm. want. I'm really invested in the play. You know, when the players spend, you know, eight hours sitting around a table and we're all, you know, we're all, you know, we have things to do. We have lives and children and wives and, you know, jobs. If you're going to spend eight hours around the table, I want to make at least make sure that you're having a good time. You know, it's, it's not boring, you know. Um, you know, dynamic opponents. You know, I I want to steer clear of uh, you know the, the the kind of stuff that uh, that I did early on. Yeah, we had a rule of cool moment in the campaign that I run on Saturdays. They were fighting a. Um, of course, I would forget the name of the monster off the top of my head. It's <laughs> it's the lion with the spikes and the wings. Oh, manacore. Yeah, manacore. That's. They're fighting a manacore because I've always wanted to use one and never had the opportunity. No, totally. That's what the monster manual is there for, man. It's it's full of full of all that uh, all that crazy goodness, man. You gotta you gotta you know you gotta get in there and use them all sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to keep him away from the monk, so he was up in the air, and the monk decides she is going to try to jump up there and hit him with her staff. And so our uh, our dwarf bard goes, "I will instead of I- I'll take my reaction." to give her a boost essentially and i said all right roll me an acrobatics check and i'll be damned if she didn't roll not a natural (laughs) 20 but a a total 20 right right but then she rolled the attack and missed (laughs) (laughs) no man those you know i I find those those rule of cool those really dynamic moments that's really what um you know, years and years later, that's really what your players will remember. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you could, yeah, you, sure, you could storm the, you know, the cloud giants, uh, cloud castle, and you know, you kill all the giants and loot the treasure, and yeah, that's cool. But you know, it's really those 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 moments where, like, okay, well, you know, everybody's down to, you know, single digit hit points, and there's one enemy left, and you know, I'm gonna, you know do some you know, crazy dynamic action and, you know, hurdle myself onto this giant, knock him off the, the, the cliff and sacrifice myself for the whole party or, you know, just something, you know, just crazy, you know, that the, that the players end up remembering, you know, and, it, and that goes on the other side of the table too. So when you're DMing, if you have uh, memorable villains and you have uh, uh, really uh, dynamic and memorable locations, you know, all of that um, really helps to, to, to nail home Uh, the kind of experience that your players are going to remember. So, in all your years of running and playing D&D and other RPGs, can you think of a game that stands out in your mind as the most fun? Oh, man. Um, Yeah, actually... um... So this is uh, again where I was playing. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't running it. Um, you'd have to ask my players <laughs> which, which which one they that they thought was the best. But um, I spent probably the entirety of of third and three point five editions of D anD D playing through the Mega Dungeon uh, Rapanathic from uh, from Necromancer Games. Mm-hmm. Um, that was literally the the bulk of my experience in in the, in third edition. You know, we discovered this. Uh, we discovered this uh, this this you know, badass series of modules, and you know, between the entire group, we were all just enthralled with it. We thought it was just the coolest thing. It had the old school feel, but it was you know for the the new edition of the game. And man, we just oh my gosh, man, we had so much fun. I mean, so many memorable sessions. Just you know, just trying to to uh, explore, and we, we were fighting monsters, and there was a whole overarching story, and we tried to flood the dungeon, and all, all kinds of stuff, but, you know, um, it was really that that Rappanathic uh, series of games, that was just, for me, that was just some of the funnest times I've ever had uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons, and role-playing in general. In that same time frame, can you think of the least fun game you've ever played or run? Uh, <laughs> you, you know, I'm not going to call out any names, I'm not going to, you know, point, point fingers or anything. 
but there there have been a few. Um, you know, I, for the longest time, um, I had a rule that I, I didn't want to play D and D with anyone that I didn't I, that I wouldn't want to go to the movies with, or I wouldn't want to spend you know a couple hours go to dinner with, you know, whatnot. Mm-hmm. Simply because it is such an investment of your time. You know, now obviously, you know, going to cons and, and whatnot, that has all changed. You know, I'm a much more, you know, open about who I game with. But, but back then, that was a pretty hard, hard rule for me. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't really care to, uh, to, to just sit down with a group of strangers and, you know, some, you know, what, you know, potentially waste eight hours of the day. So, um, there were a couple times where I, you know, ventured into a, a new gaming group or, uh, took a chance on somebody and, Man, it was uh, some. Some of them were pretty disastrous. <laughs> now, these next two questions, I'm actually really looking forward to your answers for these because uh, just going off of your Instagram, I feel like these will be these will be some interesting questions for you. <laughs> all right. First of all, if you could make an RPG system for any fictional universe that does not have one, or Ooh. if you could take an old RPG and update it with a modern rule set, what would it be? Oh, uh, that that question. That's so easy. Um, for me, it's the uh, Arduin Grimoire, uh, Dave Hargrave's old uh, um, system from the from the seventies and early eighties. Uh, if you're not familiar with with, are you familiar with Arduin? I'm not. So Arduin. Oh man, this is the. It was the coolest system. I mean, uh, from top to bottom, um, the rules were a little wonky. Now, some people will argue with me on that, but I'm, I'm telling you, they were just a little wonky and a little confusing. But his setting. And his ideas and the things that he translated on that page were amazing. He had, I mean, he had just grand scope. And he had um, just, I, I like to call it crunchy goodness. Like you'll, you, you, would, you would open up um, uh, the first or second, third, whatever, Arduin Grimoire. And every page was just packed with the, the coolest little tidbits of information. He... You know, he was I mean, he he was basically doing riffs before anybody ever even thought of riffs, but he was doing it in a, in a super heroic fantasy system, and uh, you know, it was a it was a an early D and D clone for sure. I mean, it, it basically patterned all the rules that you know the Gygax and 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 uh, and all his guys had laid out. But I'm telling you, if you ever get a chance to look at those books and just just page through them. There's the, the craziest monsters, the coolest magic items, the most awesome locations. Arduin Grimoire, man. Like I said, a lot of people clown on it, but I love it. If, if anybody's listening and there's ever a design team that's going to redo that, dude, I will camp out on your front porch, and uh, you know, and and uh, I won't leave until I get that job because that is it, that's my dream project. Have you ever looked up to see like who holds those rights or anything like that? Oh yeah, yeah. They've. It's one of those deals where it's kind of switched uh, hands quite a bit over the years. Um, you know, I'm I'm always holding out for for, for hope that somebody uh, you know somebody's going to going to get behind that and really give it the push that it needs. Um, it's kind of like the 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 black sheep or redheaded stepchild of uh, of the early RPGs. You know, like uh, Empire of the Petal Throne. It gets lots of love and. You know, Blackmore and um, all all those early ones. They really get a lot of even the Wee Warriors stuff. All that stuff gets a lot of a lot of love. But um, Arduin, for whatever reason, it seems to get pushed to the side. And I'm not quite sure, um, you know, why that is. Because I like again, I just think it's you know fantastic. Um, there's a fellow out of New York named Andy Markham who um, who has kind of been the champion. Um, for the old Arduin system, and uh, he's got a great page on on, on Facebook uh, dedicated to Arduin, and uh, he's he's really the the, the guy. Um, his his you know whole page and his games and stuff that I've uh, I've been following for so long, man. He's he's really been a champion for the system. So you know I hope somebody somebody somewhere you know picks that back up and gives that guy a job because uh, he's 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 the man for it. That's someone I'd like to talk to on the show. Oh, he's a great guy. Yeah, if you ever get a chance to have Andy Markham on, man, he's he's a he's a wealth of knowledge, especially about uh, Arduin and old school D anD. d And the final question: If you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? <laughs> uh, well, I just uh, are we talking just D anD D or or, or what? Role anything. playing in general. The the answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. Look, man, I, I was not prepared for that question, but um, I did just have a T-shirt made um, a couple months ago for uh, the North Texas RPG convention down in uh, down in Irving, Texas, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a old uh, uh, Eric's cousin or Iraq, however you want to say it, Iraq's uh, uh, cousin T-shirt, and that was uh, basically to find my people. 
So if I'm wearing a, an, an Eric's cousin or Iraq or however you want to say it, if you're if you're wearing that, you and somebody says, "Hey man, I know that Eric's cousin. That's badass." Then you know that's your person because that <laughs> is such a deep, deep, you know, old school early Gygaxian cut that uh, you know. Uh, only people in your tribe are going to see that. All right, well, that does it for the introductory questions, so let's kind of jump into some questions specific to you now, Levi. Starting off, uh, what was it that made you uh, start making adventures? Oh, well, I mean, you know, back in the day, I was always making adventures for my friends, you know, and it again, I wasn't I wasn't really following a lot of modules. Of course, you know, I'd, I'd buy them and I'd read through them and quite a bit of, you know, second edition stuff, honestly. But I was doing a lot of making my own, you know. Um, so I always had that, that creative urge. But really, as far as uh, in the last few years with the whole Planet X thing, um, it was my, you know, my son had started to get into, my oldest son had started to get into D&D. And he was like, hey, Dad, do you know anything about D&D? And I was like, well, actually, son... I can help you out there. And uh, it was kind of an opportunity for me to start to kind of look cool in his eyes, you know, because he was in that teen, you know, the teenage years there where, you know, parents are dumb and they know everything. And, you know, we were all there at one point. And, uh, you know, making uh, adventures and, uh, you know, actually having him be able to hold something in his hand that, you know, that, that dad made and looks professional and is fun to play and that he got to play test. He can see his name in the credits. You know, that was all kind of the genesis for uh, for me starting the self-publishing. Um, now, I have a, a mentor. His name's uh, uh, Casey Christofferson. He's a, you know, a well-known writer uh, in the RPG industry. He's you know, got something, 70, 80 credits to his name. And you know, he and I had been friends for a long time, and I was saying, hey, you know, hey man, like how to, you know, how to get my foot in the in the you know, in the door? And uh, he's like, look, he says, don't wait on anybody else. You know, don't sit around and, and mope and and you know, hope somebody will give you a job. Just write your, you know, just write your own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so he really pushed me in that direction. I'm super thankful for it too because he really gave me the kind of confidence that I needed to, uh, to be able to, you know, not only write my own stuff, but then, you know, not sit around on my, on, on my hands, just go ahead and, and self publish it, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's given me a lot of good advice over the years and, uh, you know, access to, to people who are much, much smarter than me who have given me, you know, just great advice. So that's kind of how I got into it. Um, to be honest, you know, it was, was trying to impress my son, <laughs> you know, a, a creative urge on top of that. And then, you know, having, having these, uh, these friends that kind of, that kind of pushed me into it and said, Hey man, you, you can do this. I heard you, uh, you, you talked about this on the, uh, the vintage RPG podcast a little bit. What was it that kind of brought you out of D and D? And then, um, I guess you already answered what it was that brought you back was your son, correct? Um, it brought me into, uh, well, there's a couple times where I, where I kind of dipped out. One was uh, after second edition, and in the third edition, I was I was kind of had one foot out the door. I was like, mm-hmm. eh, you know, and it was, it was mainly because you know most of my friends had moved away, and I had moved to a different city. And I didn't know anybody was playing, so I was kind of had one foot out. But then, you know, I I, I got a group, and I you know started I started playing Rapid Ethic from uh, from Necromancer Games. Mm-hmm. But then when the, when fourth rolled around, I was completely out. Like whatever it was about fourth, and I'm you know again. It's, you know, everybody has their edition. You know, every edition is somebody's first. You know, I get that. It just wasn't for me. So I completely dipped out and forth. Uh, probably didn't pick up a D&D book for, man, you know, five, six years. I just was completely out. And then, uh, you know, I started hearing all this good stuff about Fifth. And, of course, my son coming to me and saying, hey, Dad, I'm, my friends and I are playing this game. Do you know anything about it? That completely drew me back in. Now, uh Kind of shifting gears a little bit. Uh, what was it that made you want to start uh, the It Came From Beyond Planet X Instagram? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, really that Instagram page, it is it is everything that I love about pop culture and uh, creativity and all, all the things that I um, admired either growing up or, you know, in my adult life. I mean, it's got everything on there from, you know, fantasy, sci-fi to horror you know, to comic books and, you know, just rad art and, I mean, all this different stuff, from, from you know, that I've found interesting over the years, you know, all the way from when I was a little kid to now. And I just kind of throw it up there with no rhyme or reason. And for whatever for whatever reason, that really appeals to people. And through that, I have been able to meet a lot of people, not only in the RPG industry, but a lot of artists and um a lot of people that I actually admired, you know, have reached out to me or I've met them through that page. 
so really it's, it's the, the genesis of that is just me loving you know like i said one minute it'll be like you know i'll, I'll be thinking about the creature from the black lagoon you know and I'm, and I'm googling you know looking for pictures or i'm reading the I spend 10 15 minutes going down a rabbit hole in an article about you know phantom of the paradise and then you know i'm i'm off you know i post six or seven you know things from the you know, from the the grindhouse days of uh, you know Forty Second Street and the Deuce, you know, it's like it could go anywhere. I'm, I'm, you know, it might be I, I'm you know, super into uh, thinking about um, you know, Batman artists that day. There's there's just no telling. There's no rhyme or reason, um, but um, it's probably a lot of joy. And something that I see a lot on that Instagram, and that I see in in both of these adventures that you've got here. Uh, you seem to have a great affinity for kind of the grindhouse and uh, and B movie stuff of the the seventies. Uh, what was it that kind of drew you to that? Oh, so look, I've I've always been a weird kid, you know. I've <laughs> I've always been uh, I've always been a little different than uh, than than the rest of the people around me, and uh, I never really grew out of that. I was always into monsters and you know aliens and uh, you know Star Wars and all that kind of stuff, and I, I just never, like I said, never really grew out of it and as i got older you know and i started being exposed to um you know the whole grindhouse exploitation you know mondo genre i really felt like a, a real affinity with that with that genre of, of movies because i love b movies i love i mean in fact i flat out love bad movies to be honest with you mm. and uh you know a lot of the a lot of the grindhouse stuff uh you know they, they were so cheaply made and um so you get a lot of sci-fi and you get a lot of horror because you know you could you, you could do uh, you know, cr- crazy things you know on a, on a low budget and you know you turn out and sometimes they'd hit big. I mean a lot of people don't realize that Hall- both Halloween and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre those are low budget grindhouse films that you know made good. You know now they're you know billion dollar properties or whatever. But I always had an affinity for the, for that kind of stuff. And as I got older, um, the grindhouse uh, the whole grindhouse era from the 70s 80s that that really uh that really appealed to me are you a big john carpenter fan as well oh man love john carpenter i mean he's i mean he's top top five directors of all time to me i mean i i worship at the foot of the of the altar of john carpenter man I, mm. he's, he's one of my favorites yeah i love i love john carpenter as well would you ever be interested in like an escape from new york or a big trouble in little china rpg oh absolutely man and, you know it seems like i've heard rumblings over the years about both of those properties being you know being picked up and and people doing stuff with those um but yeah absolutely i mean it would be either one of those is fantastic you know they're those are fantastic uh, settings to to for an, an rpg to unfold in so yeah absolutely what do you think uh the influence of b movies and you know that that kind of that stuff that we were just talking about what do you think that influence has has been on D D itself oh i you know, to be honest with you, I I don't know that there's been a ton of influence from you know from B movies um, and uh, specifically the Grindhouse stuff on uh, mm-hmm. on D and D. I mean, now look, taste aside, people are going to like whatever they like, and there are certainly people out there who play D and D who also love Grindhouse films or love exploitation films or you know these the Mondo genre or you know or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like there there are certainly that. But as a you know, when you when you look at the, the the what most people, when I say most people, that's I shouldn't say that. What a large group of people in, enjoy in um, in D and D, it seems to kind of gravitate more towards the Tolkienish, uh, heroic fantasy, Robert E. Howard fantasy era, and that that's fine because mm-hmm. I, I mean I love all that stuff too. Don't, don't get me wrong, man. I I grew up reading everything that's in Appendix N in the back of the the first edition DMG, man. I I'm I'm all I'm all. I'm all in on all that stuff, you know, uh, you know, Elric and Conan and Cull and the, you know, Clark Ashton Smith and Rogers Zelazny, all that stuff. I'm way, way huge fan of that stuff. You know, and you know, some of that stuff is, is very influential to me too, but you know, I've got, uh, I've got other things, you know, that I'm kind of a, a different style, I think. Um, and that's, something i'm trying to do at least and that's more of a kind of a cinematic style um i call it the grindhouse style you know it's that mm-hmm. it's that uh you know that, that the dynamic opponents the you know again first and foremost the rule of cool and having a, a quick and dirty kind of um, uh play experience you know with an emphasis on you know that old school feel but i want it to feel cinematic in a way that's kind of how i run my games and that's kind of how i want these modules to feel and uh, you know, so far, I think I think it's doing pretty well. Getting getting a lot of uh, you know good feedback on that. But um, you know, moving forward, you know, we'll 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 see how it pans out. The one thing I will say about that, even though it's not Grindhouse, uh, 
D and D, like you said, was very heavily influenced by kind of the cheap entertainment of what would have been the childhood of its creators, and that would have been like the pulp magazines, which is where Conan comes in. Oh yeah. And I always find it so interesting how that that kind of cheap, disposable entertainment like those Weird Tales pulp magazines from the 30s or uh, you know Grindhouse movies that were made on a shoestring in the 70s have influenced bigger and more influential works. I just think it's funny how that how that goes sometimes. No, you know, I, I, and I'll, I totally agree with that. You know, there's some stuff out there. And, you know, and again, for sure. There's some stuff out there that um, that definitely harkens back to those days. I mean, the days of you know, uh, fantastic tales and weird tales and all those old uh, grimy pulp magazines, those, those ten cent yarns. You know, that's a that's a huge influence indeed. Like I said, if you go back mm-hmm. and look in Appendix N in the back of the DMG and you see all the liter- liter- excuse me literary work <laughs> that uh, Gary Gygax wrote in there, all the stuff that he said you know influenced him. You know, there's some you know, stunning stories in there. Some just some great stuff. And a lot of that is that that old pulp heroic fantasy, you know, and horror too, because he, he lists Lovecraft as one of his influences. Yep. Um, you know, Lovecraft, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, all those guys, um, huge, huge influences. Now, putting D and D aside for a second, um, as far as other RPGs go, have you ever played an RPG that you felt like kind of captured that that grindhouse feel? You know, there's been a couple, and I don't know. I don't know if I want to go so far as to say grindhouse feel, but they had something special to them. And um, one of them is, is a game that's apparently not a lot of people know about. I thought it was amazing when it came out. Um, just could never get anybody to play it regularly. And one of those, uh, it was called Castle Falkenstein. Do you, do you ever, have you ever heard of this? I have not heard of that one. So it's it, it was a it was steampunk before steampunk ever became uh, mainstream or you know you, you would see people at conventions dressed up it was I mean it was so crazy and so out there and I, I wish I could remember the name of the of the the you know the people who in, in charge and the authors and whatnot because they did a bang up job that original source book was just pure insanity. I mean, it was kind of Eberron before there was ever an Eberron. It was just so crazy and so different from everything else, man. I really, really enjoyed that one. The other one would be an, another, uh, another. again, I don't want to say little-known game, but a little played game. I just have never seen very many people playing it, called Moro Project. And this is another one of those, you know, 70s, uh, early 80s um, uh, games from the kind of the early days of D&D. But it was a uh, kind of a, it was, you know, set in the future and, you know, you're, you're uh, you wake up in these in these pods and these in these cells and there's been some sort of cataclysm and you you kind of have to you know you're part of the moral project you have to restart humanity you know at least that was the way that our, our dm pitched it to us i don't know how everybody else was playing but the rules were the like some of the clunkiest stuff that i'd ever seen but the setting again was just you know was just great the, the ideas behind it and the the execution on the setting was was I mean that had a real grindhouse feel to it that had a real like a, you know very dirty and kind of do it yourself sort of feel to it and uh, yeah I was always like that again clunky rules but um, but the the setting was just just magic kind of getting back to the work that you've done uh, what was it that kind of inspired you to do your first project Jungle Tomb of the Mummy Bride uh, again it was you know I was doing the um, I was trying to trying to look cool to my to my teenage son <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh i'd had some the some genesis on some ideas for a couple of years and uh my friend casey had said you know hey listen instead of talking about it why don't you write it but aside from from those things that i already mentioned um probably you know i've always been a fan of you know the the lost in the you know the, the lost world and the you know the hidden primeval jungle and indiana jones and the temple of doom and you know all these you know, uh, the crazy adventures that take place, you know, uh, in a land that time forgot, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when you throw in the kind of the grindhouse influences, you know, you get stuff, you know, some of the, there's some great grindhouse films, you know, a lot of cannibal, cannibal exploitation is what they call it. Uh, mm-hmm. Films like, you know, Cannibal Ferox and, um, you know, Cannibal Holocaust, and all these cra- crazy movies about, you know, the people who get lost in the in the jungle and end up, you know, facing the terror at the hands of, you know, savage natives or whatever. So there was always an element of that, and you know, so I started looking at it and uh, just kind of it kind of developed from there. It was originally it was like kind of a little eight page treatment, and then it kind of ballooned up to twenty pages, and then before I knew it, it was like thirty two pages, and it just kept growing. I was like, wait, you know, maybe I should put a you know a lost uh, 
you know, coaddle graveyard in here, you know, up in, up in the, up in the mountains above a, you know, thousand foot waterfall. How about that? You know, and maybe there's a city of mushroom men and people go there and, you know, they, they inhale the spores and they, you know, they see into the spirit world to get answers. Maybe I'll throw that in there. And then that, you know, then there's a cannibal village and there's a, you know, there's satellite temples to the main temple. And, you know, it just kept growing and growing and growing until I had literally a sandbox setting that I could do. It wasn't just a dungeon anymore. So I had this cool background, cool setting for it. So I ended up instead of, you know, having, like I said, a, a little, you know, three level dungeon uh, that, you know, players could just, just wander through. It became, a you know, an actual place where you know things could go beyond the dungeon and there was op- adventure opportunities you know past just you know looting the the evil temple and killing the mummy bride there was you know there was a uh, adventure afterwards so and, and i'm a big fan of that sandbox style in general so that that all appealed to me now for this current project that's uh, that's on kickstarter right now an occurrence at howling crater i would like for you to just give your pitch for it to the people who are listening who <laughs> who have not heard of this yet um, if, you know, listen, if I could, uh, it, it's a crazy project. Um, mm-hmm. You're definitely getting some sci-fi in your fantasy, but it is still definitely heroic fantasy. Uh, we've been saying that it's, uh, if the Hills Had Eyes had a baby uh, with Plan 9 from Outer Space and then they let the baby do crack in the spaceship, then <laughs> that is that is a project. It's, uh, you know, when, when we talk about the sci-fi, we're not talking about, you know, the you know slick ships and, you know, dynamic you know, s- slick robots. We're talking about old, clunky, vintage, retro, 50s sci-fi, you know, again, straight out of a B-movie. That's that's the direction that we took this, you know. There's a, a hundred other projects where everything is, like I said, is real slick and clean, and, you know, it, there's all this stuff about aliens and robots. We did not go that direction at all. Uh, we went straight vintage, straight retro, and uh, kind of brought that into, into D&D. Look, it's full of all sorts of star-spawn horrors and technological terrors and crazed inbred cannibal folk and there's all kinds of stuff in there but if if you you know and it stands literally on the shoulders of uh you know some great industry titans you know it's it had it definitely has an an expedition uh to the barrier peaks vibe to it a metamorphosis alpha gamma world kind of kind of vibe um i mean obviously you can look at the, the page and see that but um you know there's a little hills have eyes in there maybe some wrong turn or you know bone tomahawk or you know, a little bit of Forbidden Planet and Flash Gordon, and, you know, maybe t- taking a wrong turn at, uh, you know, at them or any of that old vintage sci-fi stuff. Um, it's a crazy project, but um, we've play tested it to death, man, and it works. It's uh, it's good stuff. Are there actually werewolves in this game or am I just making that up? <laughs> uh, werewolves in uh, in Howling, Howling Crater? Crater? Oh, yes. uh, you know, not that I recall. But uh, oh. I won't. I won't. I won't yeah. rule out anything. <laughs> For some reason, in my head, I got that there were werewolves in this game, and I was going to ask you. I, I can ask you the questions anyway. What's the best and worst werewolf movie? <laughs> the best werewolf. Look, you know, this is this is an issue that is dear dear to my heart because I am a huge American werewolf in London fan. But a lot of people like dog soldiers, and I, you know, listen, I'm just not a fan of the movie. I, I've tried, I've tried to become a fan. I've, I've tried to give it a chance. I just can't do it, man. I don't think mm-hmm. it's the worst by any chance. But uh, people hear, oh, you know, American Werewolf of London. That's what everybody says. But it really is, you know, the for me, the you know, the, the benchmark for for werewolf movies. Now, there's a movie that came out three or four years ago called Late Phases. Um, that's not too bad. Um, that's a you know, as, as far as a, a low budget werewolf movie that doesn't spend a ton of money on effects and just kind of delves into a you know a relatable and interesting story late phases isn't too bad um then you, you know you got titans like the howling and in the company wolves and again man i could talk for 30 more minutes about werewolves so we should probably <laughs> did you ask that question because there is a there is an illustration uh, on the kickstarter there's an illustration of a of a of a monster that could be construed as a werewolf, um, but there's kind of an interesting story behind it. Um, is is that where you maybe thought that you'd seen a werewolf? It was that combined with the fact that the place is called Howling Crater. Ah, and okay. I just in my mind was like, oh, there's werewolves in this. No, there, there, uh, there's an old, um, there is an old uh, B sci, uh, 
sorry, sci-fi B-movie from, I want to say, like the early 60s called uh, Robot Monster. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it's literally just a guy in a gorilla suit, and then he has a fishbowl on his head, and then he is this evil monster that has wiped out all life on this planet, and you've got this, you know, crash ship of, you know spacefarers who are trying who are running from him the entire thing but he's really just a giant a guy in a gorilla suit with a like a like a diving helmet on his head it's so it's so uh, corny and cheesy but i love it i love that visual and probably the the, the illustration you're thinking of is was uh was um that is on the the instagram i sorry the um um, the Kickstarter page uh, is probably the one that you're thinking of. Um, it's a beautiful piece of art uh, drawn by uh, Adrian Landeros, and uh, it's <laughs> it's a pretty crazy piece of art. So I can understand why you would you would think that it's a that there might be some werewolf vibes there. Gotcha, gotcha. Thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So, what kind of setting do you think works best and and gives the best uh, kind of feel for this this campaign to work? Oh, for uh, for Helen Crater, most definitely yeah. uh, it's 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 heroic fantasy. So don't gotcha. you know don't be uh, don't be fooled by the you know the, hey I got some I got some robots and some sci fi in your in your fantasy. Don't don't be fooled by that. That's not all there is to it. There's sure there's there's plenty of that you know in the latter half of the novel, but you know it opens up. It is a it is a very much a heroic fantasy uh, type setting. And as you uh, kind of get closer to discovering kind of what's going on in Helen Crater. And you, you actually physically, your characters physically approach uh, Howling Crater. You start meeting some of its denizens. Uh, it takes a little bit more of a turn into kind of that uh, gritty 70s um, uh, grindhouse horror. Again, with uh, some pretty strong influences from The Hills Have Eyes and, uh, you know, movies like Wrong Turn or uh, Bone Tomahawk. Those, uh, those crazy cannibal, you know, you know, movies that were so popular there after... Um, after Texas Chainsaw Massacre hit it big, you know, Spider Baby and, uh, again, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there was a whole uh, subgenre of, of grindhouse flicks that catered really to just the, the crazy hillbilly family out in the woods who, you know, would waylay, uh, waylay people and then, you know, you know, nibble on them a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I envisioned kind of what you were talking about with the heroic fantasy thing, but the other thing, and this is just kind of something I've been playing around with in my head. If I were to run this game for my players, I think I would set it within kind of like a Flash Gordon slash Zardoz type space fantasy setting. Oh, man, I love that you just said the word Zardoz. That is so amazing. <laughs> um yeah no listen um it's very easily adaptable for sure uh and because it has those uh those those sci-fi aspects um again the vintage sci-fi you know i'm talking about you know when i say flying saucers i mean i'm talking about they look like somebody threw a plate up in the air you know via plan nine from outer space or you know all the all the robots are big clunky you know, contraptions that, you know, that, uh, you know, their eyes flash red when they're, you know, when they're angry you know, or, you know, or whatever. You could definitely uh, go that route. You could do a Flash Gordon kind of thing. You could even do like a, like a um, Thundar the Barbarian kind of thing with this, with just the minimal kind of, uh, you know, tampering with it. Shane I mean, Helmsley is going to be very happy that you brought up Thundar. Oh man. Well, you know, man, what, 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 uh, what kid of my, uh, my era didn't love Thundar. I mean, it was between that and the D and D cartoon. Uh, that was, you know, that was the reason to get up on Saturday mornings with, uh, jungle tomb. And with this one, you, you're kind of like setting up all these, these weird occurrences within kind of a heroic fantasy setting. Do you have any ambition of kind of creating your own setting that would be compatible with fifth edition? Um, you know, there's there's some stuff that I'm you know, I'm always I'm always writing. I'm always uh, you know I don't just just write one project until it's done. I'm always writing you know three or four different things, and I've definitely got uh, got some stuff in the works. Um, I've got a couple more projects that are coming up that uh, I think are really going to interest people. And one of those is a is a real uh, ha- has a real uh, sandboxy heroic fantasy vibe. Now it, again, it's not uh, it's not straight up Tolkien or you know classic Gygaxian you know, fantasy, but it's it's pretty steeped in you know that that robert e howard um school of of heroic fantasy so you know a couple of years down down the road when when we're finally done polishing off all that we we put it up on kickstarter indiegogo i'll uh i'll uh we'll, we'll, we'll see how that one goes you've got some rather interesting stretch goals for this project <laughs> um would you mind filling in the audience about some of the some of the stuff that you have planned 
uh, yeah, for the, the extra funding that comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there, there are really two that really I, – I, the two I think you're talking about that really stand out. Um, the first one is we're just – I mean, we're just literally, uh, I think, like 100 bucks away from hitting it. Um, mm. It's our fifth stretch goal, and it's uh, it's custom monogram barf bags. <laughs> so <laughs> – so back in the uh, back in the '60s, there was a there was a, a popular director named William Castle, and he uh, he always had these gimmicks for his movies. You know, so if, they, if there was opening night or uh, the first week a show would run, he'd have these crazy gimmicks like, uh, you know, for the Tingler, uh, which is a, a, a horror movie that he had in the '60s. There was a there was a buzzers that were placed underneath the seats unbeknownst to the audience and during a very pivotal scene um in the movie when the lights the lights uh, the lights in the theater go out and there's nothing on the screen all you can hear is vincent price's uh voice telling everyone to scream scream it's the only way to stay you know stay safe from the tingler these buzzers would go off underneath the seats (laughs) and it would flip people out you know i mean honestly and then uh you know he'd have stuff like uh during a pivotal scene in the house on haunted hill he'd have a a, a big um you know 10 foot um ghost that would you know soar across the you know the top of the audience as as wind blew you know and it just freaked them out and he was always doing you know little things like that but one of the things that he that he would do is he had um he had a movie that he put out where um he said it's it's you know this movie is so disturbing and it's so upsetting that you may need this barf bag you know, just be careful here. You know, he had another one where he, you know, he'd make them sign waivers and stuff. You know, like, hey, you can't see this movie unless you sign this waiver, which is actually something we did in the back of uh, Jungle Tomb with the Mummy Bride. We we had a little <laughs> waiver you had to sign before you could play. But um, yeah, that's where the idea for the barf bags came from. And uh, you know, there there's been a, a dozens of movies that that have have done that since. You know, Hellraiser two did it, The Exorcist did it. Uh, a couple of Eli Roth movies. He uh, he really he really was onto something on that that self promotion and uh, that kind of shock and and terror. Um, so with everything that that is you know that that, that uh, an occurrence at Howling Crater is influenced by, um, I felt that personalized monogram barf bags was was a perfect stretch goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the other one you're talking about is our final stretch goal. That's that's it's more in the upper tier. Um, and that's a, um, that's a, 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 like we would, you would open up the book and in the middle of it, there would be a, a double page spread of 3d art and you would have those old clunky style 3d glasses that you could put on like the ones that, you know, you would get in the TV guide, you know, back in the day when King Kong and 3d was coming on or, you know, Friday the 13th and 3d was, was coming on uh, USA up all night. They would, Sometimes they would run a promo and there'd be 3D glasses in the middle of it, you know, and there's a whole history with 3D comics and retro sci-fi and whatnot. And I thought that would be the perfect thing to put in the in, in the middle of the, the, the book, especially during a very pivotal portion of the book. So um, I hope we hit that stretch goal. It'd, it'd be amazing. That would uh, mm. really be the, the cherry on top of the Sunday for this project. Um, but we'll see. Mm. Well, I mean, as we're recording this, um, with seven days to go in the Kickstarter, we are at... Uh, just over 4,400 for the project. And when this episode goes up, we'll have two more days, guys. So if you want those barf bags and you want those 3D glasses, <laughs> head to Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. That's uh, it, Listen, uh, all, all this stuff, the, the, the fact that I even get to, to write this cool stuff and then I have such a talented group of artists working on it because let me tell you, some of these guys are amazing. Um there's a fellow named Adrian Landeros who uh, he he did all the the principal art for uh, for Jungle Tomb of the Mummy Bride and if if you've ever paged to that man his his stuff is just gorgeous um, he's done a, quite a bit of work for um, uh, for Frog God Games as well and some of the stuff mm-hmm. that he's putting out for for a kid who's 19 years old it's just, it's unbelievable I mean, he's going to be you know I mean knock on wood but you know if, if he keeps it together that kid is going to be you know, his generations, you know, Jeff Easley or Larry Elmore, he's just, he's, he's fantastic. And I'm not even, I'm not exaggerating in the slightest bit when I say that he is ultra talented. And there's a couple other artists, uh, Ed, uh, Ed Bick, excuse me, <clears throat> Ed Bickford is a uh, comic book artist out of uh, Kansas city. And, you know, I found him, uh, through his, uh, through his art on, uh, on Facebook and Instagram. And man, he, I've never seen anybody who draws robots as cool as that guy. <laughs> he has a he has a, you can look on the Kickstarter man he has a, a way with drawing uh, robots and just you know 
technological uh, killer terrors that it just uh, it, it it rings a, a special place in my heart when I when I, when I see it. Another fellow, um, he did some of the maps for um, for uh, Jungle Tomb and the Mummy Bride. His name is Carl Sternberg. Now, if you go to Instagram, he has a, a page. Um, it's at Skullfungus, so the at symbol and then Skullfungus. Um, and he's, he's pretty popular. Um, his, his work is, I mean, it's just so cool to look at. I mean, he's, he's got one of those pages where I could just scroll through and just, you know, jaw on the floor, just looking at his stuff over and over and over. His, his style is so dynamic and he, he draws all this cool little stuff in the margins and he really gets down gets some really fine, uh, fine tuned detail. His style and my style, it, it just seems to, to, to mix up really, really well. And, um, I was really, really lucky uh, to get him on the project, um, and he's a great guy too. So, you know, it's uh, it's just one of those things that, that that's worked out uh, two times in a row. Gotcha. Uh, listen, before I before I leave him out, there's another guy. Um, he's a newcomer. Um, uh, his name is uh, Tim Burns. He's uh, he's out of a small town in Arkansas, and uh, he and I've been friends for a while. And uh, I, I got uh, you know kind of attracted to his to his work. Um, uh, kind of really through his writing, he, he has a great blog. But then I started seeing his art, and I was like, "Oh man, this guy, he has skills. This dude can draw." So I reached out to him, and and uh, he did uh, several pieces for um, for Howling Crater, and you can actually see some of them um, on the, on the Kickstarter. There, he's got one. Uh, it's a it's a star mimic, kind of a shout out to John Carpenter's The Thing. You'll know it when you see it if you're looking on the Kickstarter because it, it's incredible. It's one of the best pieces of art in the module. He, he really outdid himself. Sorry, my admiration for these guys, man, it just kind of gets me to, to, to babble and they're such great collaborators. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. This is It is never bad to talk too much on a podcast. So what sort of ideas are you kicking around for the next adventure? Oh, there's a few um, that are that are going to be you know following pretty pretty quickly uh once we get uh once you know once we get everything out to our backers the third module is a um it's a oh gosh how do i explain it it's called escape from skullcano island and it's a land that time forgot romp that is it's all about kaiju all about giant monsters you know on a on a on an island that uh you know has been forgotten by the world now Along with that, you throw in an apocalyptic, you know, death cult of anti-druids from another plane who worship entropy, and then <laughs> and you throw in the you know, kind of the you know end of the world uh, uh, semantics and uh, you know uh, an open sandbox play with a timer on it because there's you know there's you know, there's a begin definite beginning, middle, and end of that module. It's uh, it, it came together uh, as a as a real um, fun project to do and. You know we're in the, we're in the midst of playtesting it now, and it's I'm getting some really good feedback on it. So I'm uh I'm really excited to get that out to people. It's a high level adventure too. So you know this is going to be levels you know 14, 15, and upwards um, for this. And you know there's there's not a, a ton of those out there. Um, you know most most adventures mm-hmm. you see are you know the lower level or, or the mid level. So this is a uh, uh, this this is a challenging one <laughs> you know there's again if uh i mean i'm i'm assuming that your your listeners know what what, what kaiju you are but they're just you know the, you think of godzilla king kong mothra you know that kind of stuff that's that's the level of uh of, of threat that we're looking at uh at certain points in the in the module but um it came together again super 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 fun module to write um and tim burns the guy that i mentioned earlier he's he's doing uh doing some writing on that as well and he has got a his his brain is nonstop, man. He it, it goes some crazy places, and I I, I love it. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's uh, there's there's Escape from Skullcano Island. Um, then there's a couple other things we got coming out. Uh, one is a um, it's kind of a book of scenarios. Like you remember the old back in the, the early days of uh, first edition D anD D, they had the the book of layers. Do you remember that? Uh, that's something I've heard of, but I've never actually looked through it. Yeah, it was like these scenarios that were you know two three pages long, and I thought, oh man, wouldn't it be great to update that and kind of uh, do it in the in the grindhouse you know style? Um, mm-hmm. So I reached out to a couple extremely talented uh, uh, friends of mine, and uh, you know we're, we're we're actually working on that. As we speak, man, we're, we're we're kind of pounding that out. You know, we got some great art that's coming in from a, <clears throat> excuse me, from a fellow named Lawrence Fernandez and uh, an, another comic book artist, uh, an inker actually, um, Tony Avina. He's uh, he's done some great work on you know Green Lantern, The Boys, and you know some other stuff. But he's 
he's uh, uh work working on the on the project as well and some of the stuff that's coming out man it's some of the craziest stuff that i've i've ever written i mean uh i mean some of it's it's out there but it's just sheer fun it's just absolute cool um and again presented in that uh that grindhouse style there's been a lot of talk about horror on this podcast and uh, i'm actually currently planning on implementing some of that into the campaign that i'm playing so for me and any other dms out there looking to throw a little bit of horror in their D, what are your bits of advice for doing that well um there have been a, a several um game systems that have have done that really really well you have to you have to hand it to sandy peterson and, and you know the, the call of cthulhu rules you know that that game has evolved over the years to become something truly you know truly special. You know he he is such a die died in the wool Lovecraft fanatic and just he, nobody translated translates uh, Lovecraft better to the gaming page than Sandy Peterson. I mean his some of his stuff is just you know is just, just you know just insane. In fact, he just did a Kickstarter. Uh, you know I think it was last year and uh, I got got the book a couple a uh, couple weeks ago and it's it's incredible. Um, so when you start seeing that on shelves, man, definitely reach out and snag it, snag uh, snag that bad boy up. But there's a game system from I want to say early '90s, maybe late '80s, called Chill, and uh, they did some pretty interesting things uh, game mechanic wise in, in Chill that I really liked. And I want to say, you know, actually probably my favorite uh, horror. When, look, I mean, when you talk about horror uh, games. Like you know, RPGs, you can't not talk about Masks of Nyarlathotep. Nyarl, excuse me, stumbling over my tongue. Masks of Nyarlathotep. <laughs> I always have trouble with that word. <laughs> to be fair, that's a hard word to say. Yeah, no, you, you, but you can't, you can't uh, ever look past that because that's the, that's the greatest of all time. And you know, as far as a, an adventure goes, that's it's incredible. You know, there's uh, murder on the or horror on the uh, Orient Express. There's um, there's some great stuff that came. All the Yellow King stuff, all that stuff that came out of Call of Cthulhu was just you know, those, especially in those those mid edition days. Those some of that stuff was fantastic. Probably for heroic fan when you mix heroic fantasy and and horror together. I think my favorite module. Um, it was actually a Pathfinder module, and there's not a ton of Pathfinder stuff that um that I uh, that I get into. But this module was was really something special. It's called Wake of the Watcher, and it was uh, by a, an, a, a fellow named Greg uh, Greg A Vaughn. And they did it for um, there was like a horror um, Pathfinder series that they did, and that his his chapter was the kind of the the Cthulhu Lovecraft chapter. And man, he did such an outstanding job. It was just, it was killer. I mean, he somehow he wrote this love letter to to uh, the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft in the heroic fantasy setting. So he has this, you know, this this great module, this great adventure, where he kind of is somehow. And I still, when I read it, I still, I'm still shocked at somehow how 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 he manages to kind of get it all in without it feeling like it's shoehorned in. But he he makes it work. But he he writes this great love letter. Um, uh, to Lovecraft um, in in an adventure module, and uh, again, Wake of the Watcher. If, if you see it, pick it up. It's fantastic. And I don't know Greg, by the way. I just I just love the the module. Well, as we're winding down here, uh, last couple questions for you. I've had a lot of people on the show who've done Kickstarter, and a lot of them have been very successful with their campaigns. Uh, you've been successful with yours so far i mean uh, already occurrence at howling crater is fully funded how have you liked working through kickstarter uh that's a great question and th- let me tell you start off by saying there is a lot of stuff that uh that they don't you know that you just you have to find out sometimes the hard way unless you have you know people <laughs> people who can give you some good solid advice now luckily i've i've not had to learn too many things the hard way i've had some some folks in the industry that have that have uh, I've reached out to and have have been extremely generous with their time. Um, thank you, Matt Finch. Uh, thank you, Michael Badalato, <laughs> Zach Glazier, all those guys, extremely uh, generous with uh, with their advice. But um, there are quite a few just little things, you know. They, I don't want to say that Kickstarter nickels and dimes you because they don't, but there's a lot of little fees, you know. There's a credit card fee, and then there's a uh, you know, there's a um, you know fee that comes right off the top, and then you've got your shipping stuff, and then it's all you have to calculate it very, very closely, or you could end up losing money. You know, I've I've talked to several creators who, um, you know, they it, on the on the outset it looks like they really you know they they really did well, but you know you talk to them after everything's you know said and done, you know you can 
you can if you if you're not careful and you don't ask all the right questions and you you don't dot all your i's and cross all your t's you know you can really you can really get um, surprised with some with some costs especially when it comes to shipping overseas um that's that's another one that is uh, that's big let me tell you there's 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 some tiny tiny things that if you do you know if you do them wrong or you you choose one path over the other you know that that ten dollar fee that you thought was going to be my balloon to a twenty four dollar fee and then if you you know, you multiply that by a hundred buyers, then you know you've, you've got a problem. But listen, listen, Kickstarter in general is—they've, you know, it's 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 a great platform for for getting your stuff out there and, and crowd, you know, crowdfunding. Indiegogo is good too. Those are those are both you know great uh, you know great places to go to to get visibility on your project so people can see what you're doing and you know you can find your audience that way people who are into the same kind of stuff that i'm into you know they find the project and like hey you know this guy's into all the same things that i'm into let me you know let me give this a shot you know so you know i don't don't want to sound like i'm disparaging kickstarter because i'm absolutely not it's just uh you know it's it's a it's a tough road sometimes to navigate and uh without those those mentors and, and, and people to give you advice. Um, sometimes you can fall into some potholes. That's that's all I'm saying. For our last question here, before I turn it over to you, just to plug whatever it is you'd like to plug. Um, we've also talked a lot about B movies on this uh, this podcast. So <laughs> let me just ask you the tough question. Oh boy, who's the coolest B movie hero? Ooh, um, I think without a doubt we got to go with uh, with Ash from the Evil Dead, specifically Ash from Evil Dead Two. And uh, Army mm-hmm. of Darkness, because, I mean, come on. I mean, he's got a chainsaw for a hand. He's, you know, he's got a boomstick. He's He fights zombies and demons, and he is, always says the cool thing. You know, he's, <laughs> I mean, Bruce Campbell, man. He's, uh, is, is there anybody who's, who's better? I mean, then we're not counting Big Trouble in Little China. We're not counting Jack Burton, because that's not a grindhouse film. That's not, not really a B-movie. You know, that mm-hmm. came out in wide release, so we can't, we can't uh, count, count Jack Burton, but... Um, yeah, man, I got to go with Ash, uh, Bruce Campbell from uh, Army of Darkness and Evil Dead 2. Gotcha. So like I said, um, at this point, I'm just going to turn it over to you, uh, plug whatever it is you want to plug, your social media, uh, your Kickstarter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a current Kickstarter as of right now. Um, it's seven days in, uh, probably going to be, by the time this drops, it's going to be just a couple more days left on it. It's called An Occurrence at Howling Crater. Um, it is a grindhouse style um, adventure module romp um, uh, that is uh, compatible for fifth edition. Um, if that is, uh, if that's, you know, up your, up your alley, go for it. It's uh, th- there's some, some great stuff. A lot of, a lot of heart and soul went into this and uh, I got some great people to uh, collaborate with. So I think it's definitely worth checking out. Our Instagram is uh, it came from beyond planet X uh, we update daily. There's uh, we're on Twitter at Planet X Games Company, and uh, we're on Facebook at Planet X Games. Well, Levi, thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed yourself on the show. Yeah, man, it was a cool hang for sure. Well, guys, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, next week, we are going to be talking to Candice, aka Faye Anse from Knights and Nerds. It's going to be awesome. It's the first time I've had someone who isn't Tim on the podcast. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. So, uh, until next time, just remember what old Ryan Howard does when the earth quakes and the poison arrows fall from the sky and the pillars of heaven shake. Yeah, Ryan Howard just looks at the big old storm right square in the eye and he says, Give me your best shot, pal. I can take it. I'll see you next time. (laughs)